Turn to Matthew chapter 16. That is the question. Who is Jesus? Really, it's the uh, of monumental importance that you know the answer to that question. Heaven, hell, your eternity hangs in the balance based upon your understanding, your conviction, and your belief to the answer to the question, who really is Jesus? Now, that question that was at the forefront of the mind of the disciples as you open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Jesus is going to press his men and ask them that very question. You see, when you pick it up here in verse 13, we're going to find that Jesus is actually going to reveal his identity. If there's any confusion in your mind as to who Jesus is, or you've got relatives that are confused, or friends, or co-workers, then you're going to want to pay real close attention to Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, because he's going to spell it out and tell you who exactly he is. Verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Jesus has kind of moved. He's crossed over the Sea of Galilee. He's 25 miles kind of more north and east. He's in a place called Caesarea Philippi. There was this huge rock facade, and the, the town had for centuries been called Peneus. But Herod, the, Herod had placed one of his sons, Philip, there, and he was kind of the ruling tetrarch, the ruler there. This was his part of the kingdom. And Philip decided that, you know, I got this great idea. I, I will name this place after Caesar, and I'll tie my name to it as well, Caesarea Philippi. And so when you're kind of the ruler, you thought, you know, this is good. You know, this will link me with Caesar. This is all real good for my political future. And so he, he had recently changed the name to, of this place, Peneus, to Caesarea Philippi. Now, this particular place was kind of like, like pagan on steroids. This was where all the wickedness and all this pagan mythology seemed to have like a major, be a major hotspot. You see, at this particular place, they had for centuries worshipped Baal there, okay? And all the wickedness that came with that worship. And then there was this, this god Pan. He's kind of like a half goat, half man kind of immoral creature. I mean, just to read about him is, is just and some of the wicked sexual things that he's involved in, he's worshipped at Caesarea Philippi. And then uh, then Herod, actually before he'd actually passed over Caesarea Philippi to his son, he actually built a temple to worship Caesar. And Caesar was worshipped. So the emperor of Rome was worshipped, received worship. There was a temple at this very place. And to make, okay, so you kind of get this place, you're like, wow, lots of pagan stuff going on right here. Well, just to kind of top it all off, at this huge stone facade, this huge massive rock structure, there was this huge cave. And they referred to this cave as the Gate of Hades, the Gate of Death itself. And there was at this, this particular cave, and you can actually see it here in this picture, there is a pool there. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that they had attempted to try to figure out how deep this pool was and could never actually figure it out. It was that deep. So this is a place of mystery, of paganism, of spiritualism. Gates of Hades right here. It's at this place in Gentile country that Jesus asks this question, 
Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Jesus' most common title to refer to himself was the Son of Man. Now, that was his, he used that about 83 times in the Gospels. When he called himself the Son of Man, it spoke of both his humanity and his humility. But for those who were steeped in the Old Testament, and most Jews would pick up when you said Son of Man, it would bring to mind Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the Son of Man receives a kingdom that will never end. His dominion will never be destroyed. It was a messianic title. And Jesus used this of himself. He spoke of his humility, his humanity, but he also spoke of his deity and supremacy, and he would use this title, Son of Man. And so Jesus asked, hey, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, verse 14, his disciples said this. Well, some say... John the Baptist. You remember in Matthew chapter 14? Who did, who did, who did uh, Herod think that Jesus was? Remember? He says, oh, man, this Jesus is doing all these miracles. I know how come he's doing it. He's John the Baptist up from the dead. Because remember, he had actually had him killed. All right, he had him beheaded. And so he thought, certainly, that's what's going on here. What's taking place is that Jesus... He's really, he's John the Baptist back from the dead. That's why he's doing all these miraculous things. And there were apparently a lot of people in Israel that were believing that that indeed was the case. But then they also said, you know, some people are saying that you're John the Baptist. But others, verse 14, others say you're Elijah. Whoa. Probably the most esteemed prophet in all of Israel was Elijah. Do you know how the Old Testament ends? It ends with the promise of the coming of Elijah, who is going to precede the terrible day of the Lord, of God's wrath and judgment. And so people were expecting that Elijah would come back. In fact, it's interesting that John the Baptist is cited as coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. In fact, he fulfilled this prophecy that Elijah's coming. He's coming actually in the spirit and power. He's represented as John the Baptist, who is doing exactly what Elijah was supposed to do to call the people back, back to God, back to the covenant. He was going to restore right relationships between fathers and children. And so some of them said, you know, some people think that you're you're Elijah. You are that promised prophet. And so that's what they were saying. Now, it's really interesting, even in modern day uh, Judaism at Passover time, do you know that they actually have an empty chair at their Passover celebration? Do you know why they, they have that empty chair? That chair is reserved for Elijah, if he should so come back and announce the coming of Messiah. And so there were some that are saying, you are Elijah. And then others, you see this in verse 14, others say that you are Jeremiah, another one of the most revered prophets. Now, the reason that they were thinking that this Jesus, that Jesus may be Jeremiah back from the dead is there is in the, an apocryphal book called Second Maccabees. And there is this mythical story. This didn't happen, but there were people, there were Jews that actually believed that Jeremiah, when the Babylonians were converging and destroying Jerusalem in 586 B.C., that Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense 
and that he took them and hid them on Mount Nebo so the Babylonians wouldn't take them. And so the idea that was presented in this book, Second Maccabees, is that prior to Messiah coming, right before Messiah comes back, Jeremiah will come back, he'll go and he'll retrieve the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense, and he will restore them back to the temple, and Messiah then will come. So there's people that were actually believing that, they're saying that you, Jesus, you are actually Jeremiah. You are the prophet back from the dead. You are going to restore the Ark of the Covenant, the altar of incense, and then Messiah will come. And then they said, you know, and others are just saying you're, you're one of the prophets. And see, it's really interesting. They held Jesus in some really high regard. Never mind that Jesus had done all these miracles, miracles that most of the prophets had never done, and certainly not in the force and the magnitude and the multitude that Jesus did. And it's really interesting that even today, even in our modern era, there are many people that will esteem Jesus with a real high position. For instance, uh, going all the way back to Pilate, Pilate said, hey, listen, the governor in Judea, he says, you know what? I find no guilt in this man. Napoleon, great world conqueror, he said this, quote, I know men and Jesus was no mere man. Strauss, the German rationalist, said that Jesus is the highest model of religion. John Stuart Mill, he's the guide of humanity. The French atheist, Renan, said he is the greatest among the sons of men. Theodore Parker said he is youth with God in his heart. And so they would, they'll esteem Jesus. They'll put him real high. You're the epitome of religion. You are what we all should become. You're the highest ideal of ethics, morals, spirituality. But it's always to put him at a level less than God. And when Jesus asked them, hey, who do people say that I am? They were describing, well, you're one of these prophets. But then Jesus asked them the question. He asked the question verse 15 and he said to them but who do you plural who do you say that i am i know that that's the word about me and that's what others are saying people are kind of figuring out what is the the uh, political uh, way to identify me what is the trend of the culture and so that's what they're ascribing People do that today. They get their spirituality based on popular opinion. Always a bad idea. But the question is, Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? You can just hear the silence. They're thinking. They're probably looking. Most are probably looking at Peter, the guy who says, Jesus, since it's you, command me to get out of the boat and walk on the water. Because Peter is the leader of the group. He may not always get it right, but he is going to be the spokesperson. And then, after this period of silence, standing in front of this great rock facade in Paganville, Simon Peter, verse 16, answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter says, You are the Christ, Greek Christ, Christos, Hebrew Messiah. You are the promised one. When he spoke of Messiah, it literally means anointed one. And it was more of a description. 
And it says when you when you were when you were anointed and called the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christos, it signified two things. One, it signified God's choice. And the other thing, it signified his empowerment for the task. Now, you see, the, the Jewish people would anoint people for particular tasks, three roles, three offices, prophet, priest, king. They were anointed with oil. That anointing designated them as the selection. You're the king. You're the prophet. You're the priest, the high priest. But it also symbolized God's empowerment for you to fulfill your role, prophet, priest, and king. But in Messiah, all three offices, prophet, priest, and king, were fulfilled in one individual. He is the Messiah, the Christos in Greek. And Peter says, you're not... You're not one of the prophets. You're not a priest. You are the Messiah. You're the Christ. You and you alone. Now, people were talking about Messiah. They were waiting for Messiah. Most Jews had a reserved Messiah primarily in their minds as the great military conqueror. They were very familiar with the passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God says, I promise you, David, King David, you will have a son that will reign for eternity. He will, his kingdom will have no end. David, the great conqueror and the great king, most Jews thought that when Messiah comes, he's going to be a military conqueror like David. He is going to clean house. He is going to kick out the Romans who are a great scourge and oppression. And so that was the idea. That was the idea of the, most people's minds that he is of, of Messiah. But Peter says, You are the Christ, the son of the living God. One of the titles in the Old Testament for God himself, for Yahweh, he referred to himself as the living God. I am the living God in contrast to all the dead stone wooden idols. There is but one God and is me. He says, I am the living God. And when Peter tells Jesus, you're the Christ, it was a it was a, a signified deity and humanity come together. But he also said, you're the son of the living God. You yourself are the essence of deity. You are the word made flesh. You are God himself. It's an absolute claim to deity. And this is what Peter says. I know who you are. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, this wasn't actually the first time that the disciples had made a confession as to their understanding of who Jesus was. Remember, Nathaniel had confessed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He did that in John chapter 1, verse 49. Do you remember, not too long ago, when, there, when Jesus comes walking to them on water, and remember that episode where Peter gets out and he walks on the water, he starts sinking, Lord, save me. Jesus picks him up, puts him back in the boat. And do you remember that situation in the midst of that storm? Do you remember what those men did? That's right. They worshipped him. They bowed down and worshipped him. Who do you worship? You worship God and God alone. Or even in John chapter 6, remember when Jesus says those powerful statements like, you have to so much identify with me that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm like, whoa, what are you talking about, cannibalism there? And remember it says that even, even Jesus' own disciples walked away. When he was speaking symbolically, you've got to unite with me at that level, deeply personally, intimately. Remember, Jesus says, hey, everybody else is taking off. You want to walk away too? 
And Peter said, hey, Lord, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. They had made other statements as their understanding of who Jesus is. But here now, there was no great miracle. There was no just people just responding to the, the, the moment and the emotion that comes with a miracle. Jesus says, right here, in the midst of all this pagan stuff, I've got you far away from home. Who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, to call Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, it's, it's first of all, it's a confession. It is a proclamation. It is a recognition. It is an identity. You are identifying Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus, this, this man from Nazareth, you're identifying that he is the God-man, the promised Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the one who will redeem his people. He is the great king who's going to reign and rule forever. To call Jesus the Christ is a confession. It's a proclamation. And most people stop right there. Who's Jesus? Ah, he's Christ. He's the son of God. And we leave it right there. When in actuality, it's not only just a confession. It is at the same time a commitment. To the Jewish mind, if you know something, it changes your behavior. You live differently. Jesus isn't a scholar, a professor, and he's like, I've got an academic question for you. I want to know if you know my identity. All you have to do is pass this test. It's the final exam. Just mark the right answer. Here's the test, boys. It's not one. It's not it. Can you get this right? Ah, oh, they're guessing. Could we have multiple choice, Jesus? No. To know Christ, to know who he is, is to change your behavior because you now identify him and you identify with him. And so it is a commitment. It is a pledge. It's not just a declaration. It is a statement of devotion. That's what Peter's doing here. Jesus wants to know, do you not only know who I am, but are you with me? Do, are you devoted to me? Well, Peter gets it right. And look at verse 17. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you. You have been highly favored. Simon Barjona. Simon Okay, that was his original name. Bar-Jonah means son of Jonah. His dad's name was Jonah. Okay, he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't get this from some other person or some men that said, hey, this is the right answer to that question. Nor did it come from human reason. He says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You didn't come up with this on your own. You're not like, oh, I'm really smart, and I was able to put all the miracles together. I figured out how these prophecies and how you're fulfilling them all, and I got the right answer because I'm smart. And we think that's how people become Christians because they're intelligent, and they can connect the dots, so to speak, and they make a rational conclusion. Jesus, he... He must be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Check. In actuality, I want you to pay real close attention to what Jesus says in verse 17. You might want to underline it, because this is going to radically reform your way of thinking of salvation and how people really come to know Christ. 
You didn't figure this out. Flesh and blood didn't tell you. Who did? But my Father who is in heaven. My Father revealed this to you. This isn't an academic opinion. My Father worked in your heart to draw you to myself. Jesus made a pretty similar statement in John 6, 65. He was saying, for this reason, I've said to you that no one can come to the father, um, come to me unless it has been granted to him from the father. You can't come to me unless the father changes your heart. If I were to ask you, are you a Christian? Would a lot of you probably put your hand up in the air? Do you know how you came to the point where you believed in Christ as Lord, Savior, God? He did it. He changed your heart. He is the author of salvation. He is the one who creates faith. He is the one who does it. He brings about a heart change. The Father reveals the Son to you. Our job is merely to present Christ, His claims, The reality of the fact that he's paid for sins, that he rose from the grave. But we can't change hearts. Only God does that. The Father reveals the Son. And that's what Peter is being told here by Jesus. You didn't figure this out. But my Father who is in heaven, he revealed this to you. He changed you from the inside out. He did a heart work that only he can do. Well, these men, you've, you've just got to think about the, this moment here. Here they are standing amidst all this pagan stuff. Against this rock next to Hades, the gate of Hades, right here, this big rock, this cave. And Peter nails it. And Jesus affirms him and says, that is right. This is who I am. But you need to know, it is my Father who revealed this to you. Friends, that is, that is true for me, for you, for any person that comes to truly know Christ. God is the one who does the work. He is the one who reveals to the heart. And there's something mysterious. Don't think like, well, if this person could just talk to so-and-so, they'll become a Christian. In actuality, God is the one who orchestrates that event. Yes, he uses people. But God himself changes the hearts. Well, Jesus has made his identity known. And oftentimes we stop just right there. Great. I know who Jesus is. I got the right answer. But it goes far beyond that. There is some great truths that Jesus is going to expand upon in these upcoming verses that is meant to revolutionize their life. Not only do they know who Jesus is, but now they're going to find out that Jesus is going to unveil his mission. Look at verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, some of you have been waiting for some time to get to this verse. Let me tell you, this is one of the most controversial verses in the Bible. Certainly the most complex and highly, highly debated verse and these and the following verses in all of Scripture. Let me now some of you are like, man, I know what you're talking about. Some of you are going, whoa, how did I end up here on the right Sunday? What what is tell me about this? What what's going on in verse 18? Well, let me just tell you that uh, there's obviously a wordplay going on here. 
your, maybe your footnotes give you some reference even in your Bibles. Everybody says, he says, for I say to you that you are Petros. That's the Greek word for rock. Peter, right? And upon this Petra, rock, I will build my church. There is a wordplay going on here. Who, who is Peter and what exactly is Jesus saying? That is at the crux of the matter. Now, upon this statement, the Roman Catholic Church has built a massive, elaborate ecclesiology. And because they have built so much on this verse, I need to just kind of highlight a few points here. But primarily, this verse is used by the Catholic Church to base the whole idea that, that Peter is being appointed by Jesus to be the ruler of all the church. He is the supreme authority and basically, Jesus is handing it over to Peter, and he does so right here at this verse. This is the verse that they use to substantiate a long line of popes based upon the authority that's originally, quote-unquote, given to Peter at this point. Now, if the word pope, you're like, okay, I hear about that. I see that on the news. There's this guy. He's got a big hat and vestments. And I've heard about this, but, but what does it mean? Okay. Well, the pope, it comes from the Latin papa which actually comes from the Greek word papas, which literally is a child's word for father. Okay, so that's the etymology of the word. Okay, and so they base this, like this whole idea of a pope who is the ruler. He is the supreme authority. He is the absolute spiritual authority of the church. And that is Peter. And he is the first of a long line of successive leaders who have absolute right to rule. They are the supreme spiritual authority over Christendom or certainly the worldwide Catholic Church. Now, even the word Catholic is, just to help you understand that, uh, Catholic comes from the Greek word katholikos, okay? It literally means universal or general, okay? That's, that's what the word means, okay? Usually you think of a specific denomination, but it means universal or general, and they... They believe, the Catholic Church and their scholars, have believed that this verse then teaches that Peter has the supreme authority over all Christendom. That, and his successors, they're the ones. They're the Pope. Now, this isn't actually what church history would say. There is actually a very slow development to this whole idea of the papacy and, and papal authority. The first time the word Pope is used is like in the second and third century, and it was actually a word used to denote bishops, okay? Elders, elders in these different churches. Then beginning in the sixth century, the Eastern Church, okay, there is a big division between the Western and Eastern Church. The Eastern Church started to allow this term to be used mostly for the bishop of Rome, okay? So they had elder in the Church of Rome. That's actually the sixth century. Then if you go to the eighth century, it was the word Pope, Papa, Papas, was mostly then used for the Bishop of Rome. Okay, this is in the eighth century, but it's not until 1079 with Gregory the seventh that we actually have then this decree that this is the term that's going to be reserved for the supreme ruling authority, the Bishop of Rome. He is the Pope. He is Pontiff. He is the supreme ruler of the Catholic Church. And so that is kind of its origins. Now, it's very interesting. Does Jesus mention anything about succession in these verses? No, that you're going to pat Peter. You need sure you need to pass this all on. There's no succession. Now, why did the Catholic Church do this? Primarily what drove them, especially initially, is they wanted to prevent heresy from getting into the church. Wrong ideas about Christ, God 
And so you wanted to trace your teachings back to the apostles, specifically Peter. And so they had some probably good motives to get started, but, I mean, things went wildly out of control. And uh, all you have to do is do a little reading in church history and go, whoa, what's going on here? I'm pretty certain this is not what Jesus had in mind. When you look at, though, Peter, Peter definitely does have a role and a leadership role in the early church. He is always placed first among the 12 apostles. He was the leader. He was often the spokesperson. He actually oftentimes spoke up. He's speaking up right now. The first sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, who gives it? Peter does. But Peter is just one of several apostles. He's named with James and John as pillars of the church. Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, they actually have a conference in Jerusalem. But Peter is just one of the guys. Peter voices a view and opinion, but actually, do you know who was running the council in Acts chapter 15? Anybody remember? Was it Peter? No, it was James. If if Jesus was trying to say, Peter, you're the supreme authority, that council would have looked very different. Peter never understood it that way. Peter, like in Galatians, is listed as the apostle to the Jews. Paul, in the exact same verse, I believe it's Galatians 2.9, is called the apostle to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised. But they're together. There was no idea that Peter is the sole authority. And if, if, they, if Peter was supposed to be the sole authority, there was an event that took place that's recorded in the book of Galatians that would have never happened. Paul rebukes Peter publicly. Whoa! What? Yeah, he does. He actually says, listen, what are you doing, man? You're trying to tell the Jews they got freedom, but you're acting all legalistic here and you're going back to Judaism. This ain't right. That is, Peter never, ever accepted the title of pope or chief pastor or prince of apostles or head of the church. He never did that. That was never a part of his thinking. And so if you want to like, what did Peter actually believe about himself and about his role? All you have to do is read his writings. For instance, in, he wrote two letters, First Peter and Second Peter. He refers to himself as an apostle, as a fellow elder, and he calls himself a slave of Christ, a bondservant. It's kind of a hybrid word, but that's what he calls himself. In fact, if you want to see what did Peter think about his role as a leader and as an elder, in First Peter chapter 5, he actually says, I am a fellow elder. He doesn't say, I'm the lead guy, make sure you listen and do everything I say. He says, I'm a fellow elder. And furthermore, one of the things he made really sure, he says, hey, if you're a leader like me, make sure you're not lording it over those whom you have authority. Whoa. Well, Peter had a far different understanding than what has come to be known as papal authority or the papacy. And then maybe just one other just quick point here, since I see that you're in pretty rapt attention and you've been thinking about these issues. There's an event that happens just a few chapters down the road here in Matthew chapter 20. James and John get mama involved. They bring their mother and they, you know, if you really want something done, you get mom involved, right? And they come to Jesus and they said, hey, listen, Jesus and they actually had mom speak for them, which for the sons of thunder, I, who, I just can't imagine what their mama must have been like. But anyway, she says, I want my boys to have the top two spots in your kingdom. OK, kind of a little paraphrase there. I want them to sit on the right hand and the left hand. I want them to have the top spots of authority. If Jesus had planned that Peter was going to be the head guy and it was always going to be passed down through a successor linked to him, he would have said, I'm sorry, that's, don't you remember 
you boys were there. I've already put Peter in charge of that. Far from that, he does nothing of that. He doesn't remind them that, oh, mind, I've already put Peter in charge. He doesn't do any of that. He says, that is, you can't even ask for such things. My father will do that selection. So, but that is, so that's a, a major view on that. But then you have the Protestants and the Protestant Reformation, and they saw all the papal abuse and all the things that were going on and how this really got skewed. And so they decided that, whoa, in the Protestant Reformation, you got like Luther, and they're like, they got it all wrong. So they run to an opposite extreme, and they're like, this verse talks about anything but Peter, okay? And the primary view there is that, well, when Peter was, when, when Jesus is talking about the rock, he's talking about just merely the idea that that Jesus is identified. It's that statement that he's the Christ, and that's it. In actuality, uh, to look at the verse and to give it its full credit, you have to just literally see that he's doing a play upon the words. He's basically saying this. You, Peter, you know who I am, and you called it out. I'm the Christ. I, let me tell you who you are. I'm, I'm giving you the name Peter. He'd actually called him Peter earlier. He says, I'm calling you Rock. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. When he's talking about Peter, okay, Peter Petros, the, the feminine form, okay, is Petra. You couldn't call Peter Petra because it's feminine and he's a man. You, you have that linguistically? You see that? So, and it, it's likely that Jesus was speaking Aramaic, which is actually then he would use the same word, kepha, in both instances. What I believe he's saying here is that Peter you have the role of being the first to confess me as the Messiah. And all others who fall in line with this, who make the exact same confession, who know me and identify with me, who are involved with me, you're the first of many. Now, I'm going to do a work in you. But the whole idea that you're the sole authority and we're going to pretty much build the whole church around you and you're going to be the kingpin, uh uh-uh. Peter himself said no in chapter 2, of 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, you know what, we are just merely living stones. Who's the cornerstone? Christ. And so I really think what he's driving at here is that Peter, is, is he's got the lead role of confessing Jesus is the Messiah. And other disciples are going to share in this exact same thing. This didn't mean that Peter would have greater authority than the other apostles. And really, if you look at the book of Acts, Peter is sent out like to Samaria, okay, in Acts chapter 8, verse 14. He's, if he was the tool, guy in charge, he says, I'm just doing this. Peter has to give an account for his actions in Acts chapter 10. He does it before the church and council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11. Uh, James has the final word at that conference in Acts chapter 15. And when you get to Acts chapter 16, after that, Peter just is no longer really on the scene in terms of his, the narrative in Acts. So, What Peter is doing, though, is that Jesus is going to use Peter in some pretty significant ways, as he does all who truly come to the full understanding because of the Father's revealing that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus says, I say to you that you are Peter, verse 18, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus says, I will. Future tense. The church that Jesus is speaking of had not existed prior to Jesus coming and his establishment of it. Okay. Now, the word church, ecclesia, means called out ones. 
Okay, and it was used of any sort of gathering. They would even refer to ecclesia as like if a Greek to refer to like a synagogue, even a calling out of people that were set apart for a particular purpose. Jesus says, I'm going to establish my church. It's coming and it's coming in the future. And these are people that are going to be known by me. They will know me and I'm going to accomplish my purposes in them. It is my church. When does the, when does Jesus actually establish his church? Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the word, and you have this widespread drawing. You have 3,000 people that repent of their sins, they're baptized, and they identify with Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus makes this statement about, I will build my church, the apostles didn't have any idea that it'd be Jews and Gentiles together, that it'd be this body, the bride of Christ. They didn't have any sort of development like that. All they knew is that Jesus said, I'm going to do something in the future. I will build my church, and I'm the center of it. I'm the architect. I'm the establishment of it. I will be the creator of it. These people will know me. They will be like me. They will accomplish my purposes. It is something, though, that is still future, and he says, the gates of Hades. They're standing right in front. You see that cave? They're standing right in front where people thought this was the gate of Hades. It's the entrance to death. Jesus says, death nor the power of hell itself will not be able to stop my kingdom and my church. It will advance. My church will move forward because I am the cornerstone. And all of you who know who I am, you're identified with me. You're going to accomplish my purposes in this earth. And 2,000 years later, Jesus is still building his church. Now, how does he do it? How does he build his church? Well, first of all, we already covered it. One, God grants people the revelation, the knowledge, the understanding, and the faith to believe in Christ. It's like you come to see your sin, okay? You see how wicked you are. Anybody got, if you have any question about your wickedness and sinfulness, just either ask your parents or ask your spouse. They'll help you out. Like, yeah, you got a sin issue. Really? I'm in denial. Well, let me help you. We all have sin issues. Once you see not only your sin, the fact that it has created a separation from you and a holy God, it is the sole source of your alienation. Then you can understand Savior. Christ has saved you from your sins and you are drawn to Christ. It's like you must have him. You see the need and you see him and you believe. It is an act of faith. And when you do, you're declared right with God and you, because you've been united with Christ. So God grants a knowledge of him. But let me tell you something else. He gives his people truth about his kingdom. Look at verse 18. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And then he says this, I'm going to give you something. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You see that in verse 19? And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. He says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, what do keys do? Keys back then work like keys today. So this is not a trick question. Anybody know what keys do? What? What happened? Keys, what? They open things that are locked, right? And they get you in. Now, people have taken this idea, and he's speaking to Peter and the apostles. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And like they're like, well, 
as primarily the Catholic Church says, Peter's got the keys, so you better be with him. And we got a long line of succession, meaning you better align yourself with Peter and his and his successor or else you're outside. And of course, there's all sorts of there's plethora of jokes about Peter's got the keys and he's the one that lets you into heaven. And there's folk theology. There's a lot of people that think like Peter's going to let you in. Like you get into heaven because, well, Peter's got the keys and he's and he's, he's going to let you in and he'll let some people die. Ah, you're not coming in or you have to wait. OK, you're going to go do some purgatory things or something like that. And they and they make jokes about you. You know what I'm talking about? You know, like the one like um, like uh, there's Peter standing at this gate and there's this cab driver and and. Uh, He's like, am I getting in? Peter goes, yeah, I'm going to let you in. And he hands him this, this glimmering robe. And then, he, and then he has this, like, platinum staff, you know, like, whoa. He says, all right, you're in. And then there's, the, uh, there's a pastor that's, like, right behind. And the pastor's going, whoa. If he's getting decked out like that, just imagine what this is going to look like for me, the pastor. And because uh, Peter, Peter's, okay, yeah, I'll let you in. And, and so he hands him this really coarse robe, okay, it's like camel hair, and it's all grungy. And, and then he's got like a really basic wooden staff. And the pastor's like, hey, what's going on here? And, well, well, Peter goes, you know, well, in heaven here, you know, we work on results. Okay? You see, when you preached, people slept. When this cab driver he drove, people prayed. We work on results here. <laughs> and so we think, and we kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. And there's a lot of people that think, think you just, we're all going to heaven, right? People think that. We are all going to heaven, and there's Peter, and he's at the gates. He's the left. Guess what? I'm sorry to disappoint you. Or better yet, I'm glad I have the opportunity to awaken you to reality. That is not true. Peter is, though. He and the apostles are giving the keys. And notice what he says. It is the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys allowed someone to enter in. And God was already in the process of giving revelation to his men. They would have this inscripturated. Do you remember how many times as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, we've accentuated because Jesus makes sure, hey, do you understand what I'm saying? You don't get it? You don't understand? How is it you don't understand? Let me explain this again. Because they had to get it. Because Jesus was going to work through them to give the revelation of his kingdom and specifically about his church. And there's a difference between the church and the kingdom. The church is a part of God's kingdom. They had to get it. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to use you in some extremely significant ways. Though you're inadequate with my power through my spirit, when I reside in your life, you are going to be used in some very powerful ways. And he says, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This isn't, Earth telling heaven what to do, like, hey, we'll make some decisions down here, and that's how it'll be in heaven. Actually, it's the exact reverse of that. What is loosed and bound, what has been decreed as this is the way it is, is going to actually, in heaven, is actually going to be communicated through these apostles, and it's going to be recorded in his word. Specifically, when he's talking about binding and loosing, it speaks of, are you free from your sin? Or are you not? Primarily, the keys were used to do just that, to give a knowledge of God and his salvation. In Luke chapter 11, verse 52, remember Jesus said to the lawyers, you know what? This is a terrible situation. 
Woe to you, you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key of knowledge. You see, God had given the Old Testament to the people, the Hebrew scriptures, and the scribes, instead of helping people understand God and his nature and grace and faith, they had taken away. In fact, they themselves hadn't entered, and they had the key of knowledge. They didn't use it. What Jesus is doing, he's putting his apostles in charge. I'm going to use you to give my word. And you are going to be able to say, if you truly repented, if you are broken over your sin, you are trusting in Jesus, you're trusting in me, Messiah. This is what Jesus is saying. You've got eternal life and you have forgiveness. If you don't, if you are not broken, you refuse, you sign me as one of the prophets or something less, your sins remain. And that's what he's doing. In fact, he right after his resurrection in John chapter 20, verse 23, pretty much does the same thing. He says, listen, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, he's coming. Make sure you receive him. And if you forgive the sins of any, their sins are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. I'm giving you the ability to do that. It's what's decreed in heaven. I'm revealing it to my people. And so Jesus makes these great statements and he's saying, I'm going to use you. You see, Jesus is going to build his church. He's going to do it his way. He's going to be at the center. It is going to be through his people and it will be on his timetable. It's beginning right there. when he tells him, Peter, you got it right. You know who I am. You're going to find out my power working through you. But do you know that Jesus today is still building his church? Now, when when they called Jesus the Messiah, there was there's going to be a significant issue that they need to understand. They need to know that he is a suffering Messiah before he comes back as a conquering king. The expectation of Messiah right now in Israel, hey. When Messiah comes, he's going to kick these Romans out of here. That's why, verse 20, Jesus makes this statement. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. You see, if these apostles then started running around, Jesus, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, the masses, especially those who had been fed bread, you know, through the multitude when he fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. Or they had seen all these miracles. They were like, hey, if Jesus can heal people and he can raise someone from the dead and he can feed us, he can certainly lead us and conquer Rome and it would start a bloodbath. No. Jesus has come to redeem his people and it's going to be through the sacrifice of himself. He must go to the cross. He's got to pay the penalty for our sin. And if these guys, his key guys, go out and start publicizing he's the Christ, those ends are going to start to be thwarted. And, and Jesus says, I will not have it so. You know who I am. You align yourself with me. I will build my church and I'm going to use you. But I first have to suffer. Tell no one. Now, you know what? Jesus is still building his church. That means that, you know what? God desires that we identify with him. We identify with Christ. We know who he is, and we're not afraid to identify with Jesus. But there's something else that is critically and just as important. Not only do we identify with him, but that we are involved with his mission. He says, I'm going to build my church. He's doing it through his people. 
He wants his people involved in his work. That means you and I. The whole idea that we got the right answer to Jesus, he's the Messiah, and we do nothing. It affects nothing in our life, none of our relationships. We never share our faith. We don't really give. We don't go on mission. We don't really care about the spiritual nature, uh, spiritual state of our relatives or our friends. We don't care if Christ is glorified in our nation. We just got the right answer. That is foreign to the New Testament because Jesus wanted to establish right from the forefront. You know me. If you really know me, you're involved in my work. You see, the call of Christmas is to confess Jesus as the Christ. And it's also to commit to him and his mission. It's both. Don't bifurcate it and say, I'll just confess him, but I won't be involved. It's not an option. If I've saved you, I have saved you that you might serve me and my purposes in this life. It's just not to know who he is. It's to be engaged in what he is doing. And he's at work, isn't he? He's at work in our community. He's at work in our country and in this world. And he wants his church to continue the process. So Jesus continues to build his church through those who know him and those who are committed to his mission. You see, his people know him. They are like him and they are fully given to him. You've been blessed. You got resources. You got experiences. Remember, Srinivas was up here and said, hey, most of you are far more educated than our pastors. Remember that? Did that not sober anybody up? You've been given gift, education, opportunity. God intends to mobilize his church to fulfill his mission. And let me tell you, the son of God, he is fulfilling his global gospel mission even in our day. And right now, I'd like to, I'd like to just have you hear the story of just one of the many people in our church where that's happening. So, Ashley Carter, I'm just going to invite you to come and just maybe share a little bit of your story with us. Ashley, so glad to have you here. Awesome. Good to be back. Um, my name is Ashley Carter. I was one of six people from Fellowship to have the privilege of representing you guys um, at the Banjara School a couple of weeks ago in India. Um, I am a nurse. I've been a nurse almost 10 years. Um, I've worked with pediatrics and labor and delivery, so that is my passion. I love working with children. Uh, last year, when Mike Harden came and brought back pictures of the school in India, I just felt like I was called to be a part of that school in some way, somehow. After I saw those pictures, I emailed Grant, and I said, if this church ever puts together another trip, I want you to please keep me in mind because I want to be a part of it. wasn't sure exactly how. I thought maybe my nursing skills would be the way I would be involved and came to fruition that I did go. Um while we were there, it was my job to um, kind of get the kids checked in, get their height and weight charts from the people at the school that had been working with that, um, did their vision screening, started giving them some medications, and then sent them over to the doctors to get their assessments done. Um, I have never been on any kind of mission trip before, ever, much less gone all the way around the world to a remote village in India um, to try to serve. So the prospect of doing that was incredibly scary to me. Um, I haven't prayed that much about something in a very, very long time. Um, but I just felt that if it was meant to be that God was going to get me there and take care of me the entire time we were there. Um, you don't have to be a pastor or 
to be able to serve. You can have many skills, any kind of skills that you've been blessed with, um, you can use to serve God in any capacity. Um, I kind of realized that when we were there. Um, We had 300 children to see, but this was the first time the clinic had also been opened up to all the adults at the school as well. Um, And one of the days that we worked almost 12 hours, and we ended up having to lock out the feisty Banjara women at the school because they were all pushing through the door to try to get in. Um, I just realized that it didn't matter that I wasn't a pastor, that I wasn't overtly sharing the gospel. Um, I had a skill that was needed right there at that point in time, and I could serve in that way. So... um, That was the first of many times on that trip, like I said, that I realized that I didn't have to be a pastor or a preacher in order to serve. Um, I was put in the right place at the right time, and I want to thank everybody at Fellowship for supporting us and praying for us the entire time that we were there. Um, And talking about Grant's message today, the longer I've been at Fellowship, the more I realize that our, our... Our responsibility doesn't end here at the church. It doesn't end at our home. It doesn't end in our community or even in our state. We need to use whatever blessings that we have been given and take those around the world in order to share God's message. Um, The vision here is growing deep and reaching out. And I think this church does an amazing job of not only talking about that, but acting on it by supporting missionaries around the world, by supporting the children at the school Um, Isaiah 54 says the sovereign Lord has given me the capacity to be his spokesperson and there are so many people at this church who have so many gifts that could be used around the world to be his spokesperson so I just encourage anyone who is interested in any way in serving you don't have to do it by preaching you can be a nurse you can be a professor like some of the other people that we had on the team Um, and you will be a representative of Christ and show his love for all people. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. That's awesome. Good job. Jesus said, I will build my church. And indeed he is. Let's pray. And as we're praying, I'm going to ask the men if they'll prepare for communion. Lord, what an awesome Sunday. To be able to open up such a powerful passage of scripture and to see and understand and to realize who Jesus really is, the Christ, the son of the living God, God in the flesh. And to realize that he had said, I will build my church and you've been doing it for 2000 years. And we have the great joy of being a part of it today in this generation. And you're doing marvelous things in our midst, and we praise you. And our prayer as individuals and as a church is, Lord, just use us to make disciples of all the nations. To move us to the next steps of involvement. That your name might be glorified in every age, among every people, in our lifetime. So, Lord, thank you. And even now, Lord, as we prepare for communion, keep our heart fixed and focused and refreshed in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.